What the fuck is up, you backroom bitches? It's your boy Tyreek, and welcome back to another episode of The Backroom. It is Friday, January 6th. We're coming at you live tonight. I did promise that I would start posting every Tuesdays and Fridays, and I'm gonna fucking uphold that, alright, motherfucker? So you're gonna get an episode today. Whether it's at 8 o'clock in the morning or 8 o'clock at night, it's gonna happen. Um, I hope you guys had a great week. I did. I didn't really do much. Um, you know what I have been doing? I've been religiously rewatching Power Rangers episodes. I found this YouTube channel who's been illegally uploading you uh not YouTube. Illegally uploading Power Rangers episodes and I've been watching all the ones that I watched when I was a kid. When I was, like, five, the shit was so cool. And, I mean, it's still awesome. I still enjoy it. But as an adult with common sense, none of it makes sense. Um, and I'll, I'll start my rant by saying the villains are fucking stupid. It seems that they only attack when it's convenient for the Power Rangers. You know, they never attack, like, during the middle of the school day. They attack, like, when the Power Rangers are out of school and can beat some monster ass, you know what I mean? On top of that, they seem to only attack one fucking city on plan- on the planet Earth, and their goal is to try to take over the Earth, but they can't get past one city. Why don't they just try and attack somewhere else? You know what I mean? Go to the next town over. I'm pretty sure that the Power Rangers will get to the border and be like, listen, this is out of our jurisdiction, sorry. And, like, wave. On top of that, why the fuck are people so fucking scared when the monster gets all big? Oh, monster, ah! Because this shit happens every other day. Let's be real here. It happens every other fucking day. You shouldn't be scared because you know the Power Rangers are going to do their thing and beat the shit out of them. My third point is where the fuck do they keep these goddamn Zords that they, they have? Where where do they go? The land is not that big. I know it's not. Where the fuck are they getting them? How did they get them? It is just, It just pisses me off. And then the creators of Power Rangers really fucked up when they introduced a child as a Power Ranger. Oh, parents must have been fucking pissed. Anyways, that's my little nerd rant of the day. Um, I hope you guys have a great fucking weekend. But before that, listen to some fucking true crime. Before I begin, as always, shout out to my guy Parker. He's going to like this episode. Um, I actually asked him about my last episode. Um, the Black Dahlia, if you haven't listened to that, I highly recommend get to it. Um, but the Black Dahlia, when she was alive, lived in a town called Lompoc, and when I recorded the episode, I, I, uh, I pronounced it Lompoc, and I apologize for that, because I'm an idiot. I mean, only people from that area will be, like, pissed off about it. But uh, I had to ask, I had to ask, you know, if I pronounced it right, and I didn't. And then, for this episode, I flipped a coin, and of course, I have to do one that I wanted to do, 
with a bunch of Russian, you know, names and a bunch of consonants and vowels that just don't exist. And, you know, the words are hard and I'm going to try. I might stutter a little bit. You're just going to have to bear with me. Russian is a language that Parker speaks. FYI, I shouldn't put that out there. But, you know, you don't know him like that. Um, so, yeah, he kind of laughs at me when I when I do this. And he's going to get a real fucking kick out of that. Um, but anyways, today we're going to be talking about the Dyatlov Pass incident, which is a fucking mystery. It has been speculated for, like, 60 years on what happened. I mean, they say it was an avalanche, but... Who knows? Anyways, let's just fucking get into it, shall we? In 1959, a group was formed for a skiing expedition across the northern Ural Mountains in the Soviet Union. Igor Dyatlov, a 23-year-old radio engineering student at the Ural Polytechnical Institute, was the leader who assembled a group of nine others for the trip. Most of them were fellow peers from the university. The initial group consisted of eight men and two women, although one member started the hike but turned back due to medical issues. Each member of the group was an experienced grade 2 hiker with ski tour experience and were expected to receive grade 3 certification, the highest hiking certification in the Soviet Union upon return. In order to acquire a grade 3 certification, candidates were required to travel at least 190 miles by hiking. The route was designed by Dyatlov's group to reach the northern regions of the Sverdlovsk Oblast and the upper streams of the Lozva River. The route was approved by the Sverdlovsk City Route Commission. The goal of the expedition was to reach Otorten, a mountain 6.2 miles north of where the incident took place. The route was listed as a Category 3, the most difficult to travel. The group arrived by train in Ivdel in the early morning hours of January 25, 1959. They then took a truck to Vizai, a small village that is the last inhabited settlement to the north. While spending the night there, the group bought and ate loaves of bread to keep their energies high for the following day's hike. On January 27th, the group began their trek towards Gora Otorten. The next day, one member, Yuri Yudin, who suffered from a congenital heart defect, turned back due to knee and joint pain that made him unable to continue the hike. The rest of the group continued. Diaries and cameras found near their last campsite made it possible to track the group's route up to the day after the incident. On January 31st, the group arrived at the edge of a highland area and began preparing for the climb. In a wooded valley, they cached surplus food and equipment they would use for their trip back. The next day, the hikers started to move through the pass. It seemed they planned to get over the pass and set up camp for the next night on the opposite side. Because of worsening conditions, which were snowstorms and decreasing visibility, they lost their direction and started moving west towards a remote peak. When they realized their mistake, the group decided to set up camp there on a slope rather than moving to a wooded area about a mile downhill, which would have offered them more shelter from the storm. 
Yuri Yudin speculated Dyatlov probably did not want to lose the altitude they had gained, or he decided to practice camping on the mountain slope. Before leaving, Dyatlov agreed to send a telegram to their sports club as soon as the group returned to Vizhai. It was expected that the telegram would be sent no later than February 12th. However, Dyatlov told Yudin, before he left the group, that he expected it to be longer. When the 12th came and went, with no messages being sent, there was no immediate reaction, as delays were common with such expeditions. On February 20th, the group's families demanded a rescue operation. The head of the institute sent the first rescue group, consisting of volunteer students and teachers. Later, army and police forces became involved, with planes and helicopters ordered to join the operation. On February 26, searchers found the group's damaged tent. The campsite baffled the search party. Mikhail Saravin, the student who found the tent, said, The tent was half torn down and covered in snow. It was empty and all the group's belongings and shoes were left inside. Investigators said the tent had been cut open from the inside. Nine sets of footprints, left by people wearing only socks or a single shoe or even barefoot, could be followed leading down to the edge of nearby woods to the northeast. After 1,600 feet, these tracks were covered with snow. At the forest's edge, under a large Siberian pine tree, searchers found the remains of a small fire. There, the bodies of Yuri Krivonoshenko and Yuri Doroshenko, shoeless and one dressed only in underwear. The branches were broken up to five meters high on the tree, suggesting that one of the skiers had climbed up to look for something, perhaps the camp. Between the pine tree and camp, searchers found the bodies of Igor Dyatlov, Zineda Kalmogorova, and Rustem Slobodin, all died in positions that suggested that they were trying to return to the tent. Finding the remaining four travelers took more than two months. They were finally found on May 4th, under 13 feet of snow, in a ravine that was further into the woods. Three of the four were better dressed than the others, and there were signs that some clothing had been removed from those who died first for use by the others. That's fucking savagery right there. But I get it. I mean, something that I know is, like, when people have hypothermia, they get, like, freaked out. And, like, their skin starts to feel like it's burning, so they take off their clothes, which makes it, like, 20 times worse than it should be, you know? And then they just freeze to death at that point. It's fucking wild. A legal inquest started immediately after the first five bodies were found. A medical examination of the bodies found no injuries that might have led to their deaths, and it was concluded that they all died of hypothermia. Slobodin had a small crack in his skull, but it wasn't deemed to be fatal. Things changed when an examination of the four bodies found in May shifted the narrative of the incident. Three of the hikers had fatal injuries. Nikolai Thibault Brignols had major skull damage. Ludmila Dubanina and Alexander Zaltaryov had major chest fractures. According to experts, the force required to cause such damage would have been highly extreme comparing to that of a car crash. Notably, the bodies had no external wounds associated with bone fractures, as if they had been subjected to a high level of pressure. 
All four bodies found near the ravine were found in a stream of water, which caused soft tissue damage to their heads and faces. Dubanina was missing her tongue, eye, part of her lip, as well as facial tissue and a fragment of skull bone. The forensic expert who performed the post-mortem examinations judged that the injuries happened post-mortem due to the location of their bodies in the stream. The initial speculation was that the indigenous Mansi people, reindeer herders local to the area, had attacked and murdered the group for encroaching on their land. Several Mansi were interrogated, but the deaths didn't support this hypothesis. Only the hikers' footprints were visible, and they showed no signs of hand-to-hand -hand struggle. Journalists reporting on available parts of the investigation files say that the files stated six of the group members died of hypothermia and three died of fatal injuries. There was no indication of others nearby apart from the group themselves. The tent had been ripped open from within. The victims had died six to eight hours after their last meal. Traces from the camp showed that all the group members left the campsite on their own accord, on foot. Some levels of radiation were found on one victim's clothes. To dispel the theory of an attack by the Mansi people, experts stated that the fatal injuries of the three bodies could not have been caused by human beings. Released documents contain no, in contain no information about the condition of the skier's internal organs, and there was no survivors. That's all that they would fucking give you anyway at that time in the Soviet Union, because, you know, the Soviet Union, those are some shady fuckers, I'll tell you that, they were shady as fuck, I think we've talk talked about these motherfuckers several times, Joseph Stalin, um, you know, the Chernobyl explosion, they're, they're, they're gonna try to hide all the bad shit, they really are, interesting. At the time, the official conclusion was that the group members had died because of compelling natural forces. The inquest officially ceased in May 1959 as a result of guilty party. The files were sent to a secret archive. Ooh, of course they were sent to a secret archive, because that's what the Soviets would do. Everything was a fucking secret. Um... In February 2019, Russian authorities reopened the investigation into the incident, although only three possible explanations were being considered. An avalanche, a slab avalanche, or a hurricane. The possibility of a crime had been discounted. Kuntsevich, yes, that's right, I did say that, Kuntsevich, K-U-N-T-S-E-V-I-C-H, Kuntsevich, who was 12 at the time of the incident and would later become the head of the Dyatlov Foundation, attended five of the hikers' funerals. He recalled that their skin had a deep brown tan. Ooh, it's kind of fucking weird. On the same night as the incident, another group of hikers who were 30 miles south reported that they saw strange orange spheres in the sky to the north that night. Similar spheres were observed in Ivdel and surrounding areas continually between February and March 1959 by various witnesses, including a meteorology service and the military. These sightings were not noted in the 1959 investigation, and various witnesses came forward years later. 
Anatoly Gushin summarized his research in the book The Price of State Secrets is Nine Lives. Some researchers criticized the work for its concentration on the speculation of a Soviet secret weapon experiment, but its publication led to public discussion stimulated by the interest in the paranormal. Indeed, many of those who had remained silent for 30 years reported new facts about the accident. One of them was former police officer Lev Ivanov, who led the search in 1959. In 1990, Ivanov published an article that included his admission that the investigation team had no rational explanation for the incident. He also stated that after his team reported they had seen flying spheres, he then received direct orders from high-ranking regional officials to dismiss this claim. Ooh, that's fucking suspect. That's very suspect, family. I don't like that. <clears throat> Anyways, in July 2020, Andrei Kuryakov, deputy of the Urals Federal District, announced an avalanche to be the official cause of death for the Dyatlov group. Some believe that the Yeti was a possible cause of death, <laughs> but this was deemed unlikely. I mean, I hope so. It's a fucking mythological creature. What the fuck are you talking about? I mean, you know... Probably people in the surrounding areas where the incident took place do believe in the Yeti because, I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're out of the way, if you know what I mean. You know, they're not in touch with reality. They're more in the middle of nowhere and they just kind of go off of wives' tales to continue through the rest of their lives. However, as time has gone by, People have looked into this, and there is definitely evidence contradicting the avalanche theory, and that include the location of the incident didn't show any obvious signs of an avalanche having taken place. The bodies found within a month after the incident were found covered in a very shallow layer of snow. The second party would have been completely swept away. More injuries to the bodies would have been caused, and the avalanche would have damaged the tree lines. And finally, Dyatlov and the much older Zolotaryov had master experience in skiing. Neither of these two men would have set up camp in the path of a potential avalanche. Which I believe, I mean, if you have fucking experience, you wouldn't just, you know, set up camp on a slope and the absolute worst might happen, happen not happen, happen. Um, so it just doesn't make sense. I don't, I don't think the avalanche was the real cause but who fucking knows another explanation for the incident has been speculated that the group's camp was within the path of a soviet parachute mine exercise the theory alleges that the hikers woken by loud explosions fled the tent in a shoeless panic and found themselves unable to return for supply retrieval most of them would die of hypothermia there were indeed records of parachute mines being tested by the Soviet military in the area. Parachute mines detonate while still in the air. This theory coincides with the reported sightings of glowing orange orbs floating and falling from the sky. According to the autopsies, this would explain the unnatural manipulation of the bodies as well as burns to the hair and skin. A similar theory alleges the testing of radiological weapons, which is based partly on the discovery of radioactivity on some of the clothing, as well as the description of the bodies as having orange skin and gray hair. However, radioactive dispersal would have affected all the hikers and equipment, not just some.
The skin and hair discoloration can be explained by a natural process of mummification after three months of exposure to the cold and wind. this point in time, can we really actually tell what happened to the Dyatlov group? It's all speculation now. I mean, there's just a bunch of theories, and there is an official cause of death and, and an official explanation, but is it the real official explanation? Did that really happen, or are we suspecting it to happen? Um... The only people who know what happened are the Dyatlov group, and unfortunately, they're not on this earth anymore. Um, I think that the Soviet government was hiding the story the entire time. They were hiding the truth. It seems like they were doing the parachute mines, and they fucked up. They killed some people, and they had to... They had to cover their tracks, which is something that the Soviet government would do all the time. They were they were like the first people to sh Photoshop, like back in like the 1920s. I don't know how they did it, but they did it. And they would send opposers to the gulag, and they would never exist anymore after that. You know, so they 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 they're shady motherfuckers. Um. But maybe you guys can help me figure out what happened if you're interested in this case. I heard this case on, uh, I think it was like Unsolved Mysteries on the Travel Channel or something like that. And, you know, but they're throwing out like fucking aliens and paranormal entities and shit like that, which are a possibility. But it's least likely, I guess. Um, but it was a very interesting case, and I just, I had to talk about it. So, I mean, if you follow me on Instagram, definitely, uh, let me know what you think. Message me or comment on the photo whenever I put that out there. Um, but yeah, that's my episode, family. As always, follow, like, subscribe, uh, tell your mom about me. Follow me on Instagram, at backroom underscore podcast there you'll find you know just a little summary of the case and a couple couple photos here and there just to give you the visual in my bio on my instagram you could find my link tree and there you can find places to listen to and you know my discord which is new i'm still trying to work with that i don't know how to use it to be honest but um yeah I hope you guys enjoyed. I hope you guys have a great fucking weekend. Please be safe. Stay happy. Stay healthy. Make sure you stay hydrated. And please, for the love of God, do not skip a fucking meal. Because only racists skip meals. And you know what we say about racists. Low deck energy. <laughs> um, have a great day, guys. I love you. Fucking peace, love, positivity. Fuck bitches. Get money. Bye.